0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Voices from the Pews, the show that invites you to conversations with Catholics of color and those from communities of non-European origin so that we can get to know more about each other's faith, experiences, and stories. I'm your host, Lorna DeRose. Friends, I apologize that this episode is coming to you a few days late. As you all know, sometimes life happens and you find yourself just trying to keep up. And that is exactly what has been happening in my world during these last few weeks. I appreciate your patience. I hope the conversations that you have heard so far on Voices from the Pews have been enjoyable and informative. If so, please help spread the word about the podcast and share it with a friend. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Emily Strand and Eric Stiles, co-hosts of the podcast, Meet Father Rivers where they speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Father Clarence Rivers, the first African-American priest ordained for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati in 1956. He was a liturgist, an author, a teacher, speaker, and mentor to many during a crucial time in the history of the Church and the United States. Everyone, welcome. I am so happy to have the both of you here on the podcast. Meet Clarence Rivers' co-hosts, Emily Strand and Eric Stiles. I'm so happy to have you today, and I'm so looking forward to hearing you share about Father Clarence Rivers. Thank you so much for
1: having us on the show,
0: Lorna. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. So before we begin to delve into the life story of Father Rivers and his influence, could you both share a little bit about yourselves and how Father has influenced you?
1: Sure. Yeah. Eric, would you like to go first?
2: Sure. So I met Father Rivers in probably somewhere around 1999, 2000, maybe a bit earlier than that. When I was an undergrad student at the University of Cincinnati, I'm from Chicago, and went to UC and fell into a black Catholic community really unexpectedly and was instantly fascinated by the possibility of what it meant to be both black and Catholic. And he was from Cincinnati. The original lead Me Guy was dedicated to him and had made reference to him in both of the articles at the beginning of the hymnal. And so it became clear to me, as a a young person with a black background in the performing arts and music and theater, that there was this connection between art and worship and theology and religion. And so reading about him and then reading his own work really opened me up in a way that I just had never expected before. Eventually I met him. I should say even before I met him, I encountered him. Uh, And so that first sighting and experience was important and we talk about that in the podcast it was life-changing uh, he was just being himself and that's the most important part of the conversation he was really being himself and i gained extraordinary freedom from seeing father rivers be himself and he became a mentor and a friend i think he got a chance to work on a couple of projects my interest in the liturgy only grew i uh, ended up working for the church um, and pretty much have worked for the church in some capacity, really, my whole adult life. That's the quick version, right? Uh, I can give you more if you like, but I think it's better just to keep it simple.
1: Okay. Emily? Well, I was also really in the midst of a passionate interests in church, art, life, and all those things as a young person. And I kind of took an exit ramp from a career as a performing singer songwriter straight into graduate school at the University of Dayton in theology. And because I, I just felt passionately that I wanted to teach religion and I wanted to be involved in the academic conversation in the Catholic intellectual tradition. But I brought all my art and my music with me and I had been a lifelong church musician as well. I mean, I'd been playing in churches since I was twelve. And so I started asking a lot of questions about the music in Catholic churches and why it sounds the way it does. Why why do we have these lovely Catholics with guitars? You know, why do we have piano music? Where I had visit, I had been to a Protestant undergraduate university and all my Protestant friends, you know, they sang hymns and, and harmony and had an organ and all these things. And I was kind of like, "What? you know, we don't do that as much at my church. I, I went to a very kind of folksy parish outside Cincinnati. And so I was directed to Father Rivers. I was directed to first Dr. Cecilia Moore at the University of Dayton. And she um, was somebody I worked with already, and she was teaching me U.S. Catholic history. And she said, you know, if you're interested in the story about the progression of Catholic church music, the person you really need to speak with is Father Rivers. And I said, Father who? You know, and she she told me a little bit about him. And but importantly, and I didn't realize this, but she was she was pulling some strings behind the scenes. This was harder than she made it look. But she was getting me his phone number from a Mr. George Finley, who was the director of African-American ministries in the Catholic uh, Archdiocese of Cincinnati at the time. So she was arranging that and letting Rivers know ahead of time that this little white girl is going to be showing up on his doorstep, you know. And so and so I did. I just, I called him up and and he said he could hear my interest. You know, he could hear my, you know, kind of greenness, I think. <laughs> and so he said, you just just get down here. <laughs> you know, just get here. Let's, let's talk. And so I just conducted a series of probably five or six different encounters with him where I just sat and with a notepad and asked him questions and listened to him talk. And, uh, and we and we became friends as well. And he became somebody who he, he clearly wanted to mentor me as a liturgist. He could see a budding liturgist in me and he wanted to foster that. And he wanted to make sure that I leaned on my artistic instincts as a liturgist. Um, that was really clear that he wanted to foster that in me. And so we became friends, and and it seemed like we had just gotten to be really kind of close friends with a future in you know me continuing to benefit from his wisdom, and maybe me continuing to pay him the kind of attention he felt he deserved and wasn't getting very much of, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And then he and he died very suddenly, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. And so so that was always a real loss in my life, and a real kind of he left a, a very big hole uh, for a very small person. He left a very big hole um, in my life <laughs> and in my. Um, My thoughts about my future and things like that, I was always kind of going, what would Father Rivers do here? What would Father Rivers say? What would he, how how could I ask him this question and what would he respond, you know? So, yeah. And, you know, the podcast is a little bit of an outgrowth of of that hole, trying to get that hole filled in some way. Sure.
2: Speaking of small man, I called him the tallest short man I'd ever met.
1: (laughs) How tall was he actually?
2: He was, was he 5'5"? 5'4",
1: maybe 5'5 at Mm -hmm. the most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like 5'8", so he was much shorter than me yeah. and just a tiny little thing, uh, but just a, just like a gigantic personality, just mm-hmm. larger than life.
0: Well, he, from what I've learned through your conversations and your podcast, not only was the first black priest in Cincinnati, but the first composer who started looking into and the liturgy for Black Catholics. Not only that, but he was also a liturgist, um, loved Shakespeare, loved the, the sound and the music of the English language. Um, he did so many things. Tell me a little bit more about him. I think so many of us have not heard much about him beyond perhaps reading the first edition of uh, Lead Me, Guide Me.
2: He was also a pastoral presence very shortly after his ordination to the Grail movement. Uh, so Emily and I and uh, another colleague, Jonathan Kelso spent some time in Cincinnati last year and we visited the Grail, which is no longer the, the kind of place that it once was where there was this primarily women's movement uh, that, but it extended out into other parts of the family. Uh, and so he was a, he was a, he was, I think, a chaplain and he would say or preside at the Eucharist there on a regular basis as a young priest. And it was also a kind of a, an experimental place. So they had a barn, chapel, and they would try things. And so his music was sung. He sung his God is love communion song uh, at the first mass in public mass in English in 1964 in the country in St. Louis, Missouri so like so that that really opened him up nationally as someone who might be important people were really excited to to sing it they were really moved by its quality uh, and the ability to sing this kind of music at the liturgy and i would also say that it it had an inherent quality that some of the other music that was you know we started off with new music right just didn't have mm-hmm. it was beautiful simple and biblical. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Now, what influences did he draw from in his compositions?
1: Yeah, I can answer that. He, um, First of all, I mean, he was born in Selma, Alabama, and he moved here when he was about eight years old as part of, you know, he wouldn't have described it like this, but it was part of the Great Migration, you know. Mm -hmm. And so his parents came up here looking for a better opportunity to thrive, and so he entered Catholic school. his his parents were concerned about fighting in the public schools, and I don't know what that subtext for, but I can pretty much figure. but he entered Catholic school. I mean I, I think actually and somebody else told us uh, Jesse uh, Jesse Thomas, one of our guests, told us that Cincinnati public schools were still segregated at that time, so Catholic school is probably just about the best option. So he entered that world and he began to serve at liturgy just as a little kid. And he just fell in love with that aesthetic. So I would say overwhelmingly, besides his background as part of an African-American family, part of his background was just immersing in the liturgy. He said they just, he and the other boys fell in love with the ceremonial, with the beauty of it, with the art, with the smells, with the sounds, with every part of it, with the Latin. Oh, he said they ran around like minor clerics, you know, and, and because and they just thought it was it gave him a great sense of grandeur and importance and dignity. So that was a huge influence on him, just the aesthetic of the liturgy of the time, which is really unexpected to a lot of people. But then as a young man, when he was in the seminary, he began to be involved with the Grail, as Eric was saying. And their progressive experimental attitude had a great influence on him as well. This expectation that they would try new things and that there were changes that were going to be on the horizon that would require them to try new things and that would, and, you know, and certainly liberated them to think about the rights outside of the rubrics. And and to think about what's pastorally effective rather than what's just in the book that we have to do, and so another great influence on him was um, there was a, a Belgian Norbertine priest who who would come through St Joseph Parish, which is where he was first assigned as a newly ordained priest, uh, first first seminarian retained to serve the Archdiocese of Cincinnati who was black. And so so this Belgian Norbertine would come through and, and he would talk to them. He was a liturgy professor and he would talk to them and he would show them things. And one of the things he showed them was the Congolese mass setting, I think it's Congolese, the um, Misa Luba. And there was a record of it at the time. And this priest showed it to Clarence Rivers. And and Rivers was just like, wow, this is amazing with this drumming and these harmonies. And it's so deeply African, and yet so deeply Catholic. And that just lit up his brain, I think, you know, because he was deeply, (laughs) deeply black and deeply Catholic by that time, you know. He also mentioned that there had been a, a mass, I think, in English that had been composed to the tunes of the spirituals that he had known about. But he, the way he put that to me he said he didn't think that, that it was very successful because it relied too heavily on pre-existing melodies instead of riffing mm-hmm. on a new melody but listening to the missaluba he began to realize that there was potential for taking those elements of the spirituals musical elements of the spirituals and y- using that as inspiration for new music for the catholic church not something recycled but but new music for the catholic church mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Second Vatican Council opened up this gigantic need for just such music, mm-hmm. and so I think all of those things kind of contributed to him, but he never named any other musical influences on me besides the the art music that was influential at the time and the mm-hmm. and the Missaluba and his own folk heritage you know sure so so I hope that answers your question.
0: No, that does. And I'm sure that all of the music that surrounded him, it sounds like he loved music deeply. I'm yes. sure that consciously as well as subconsciously, it influenced his idea, his aesthetic of what that music that he composed could and should sound like.
2: Right. I'd also add to that he, he also loved the English language. He mm-hmm. loved language. Mm-hmm. So reading, he talks about uh, in um, his long... Uh, article, short memoir, from U.S. Catholic Historian. Uh, He talks about reading the breviary, which is a book of the Liturgy of the Hours that Mm -hmm. is small enough to carry, uh, that priests, monks, and sisters pray the Liturgy of the Hours.
0: Throughout the day, yes. um,
2: Throughout the day. And so Mm -hmm. he was on a plane reading an English breviary before that was the the approved text, right? It was an early version of an English breviary. He was ahead of everyone. Yeah, so that's when he actually came up with that he saw that line, God is love and and he who abides in love abides in God and God is him, which is of course also scriptural. Mm-hmm. But that's when he began to tossle together that that melody. Just after or while he was on that plane. Mm-hmm. So so th- it was inspired by the text of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And inspired by what he believed was really good English. He really he's an English teacher, uh, he loved Shakespeare, he loves oh, very Shakespeare, formal li- literature. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You know, and, like, he would occasionally, and I don't know if Emily experiences this, but he would occasionally bless and or curse me in Latin. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, he took great pleasure in language, right? Uh, either it would be a blessing or a curse, depending on the on the occasion. And I, and I really mean that. He would, he would use some text, you know, and, you know, you, you just don't want to know what it was, you know. Right, uh, right. Of course, he was joking. But <laughs> uh, yes, but right. He would like, for example, when one was like he would bless me with the prayer of incense. For him, you may be burned. You know, so <laughs> that, all depending
0: <laughs> on the tone of how that's said.
2: Yes, exactly. that may right.
0: not be a blessing. <laughs>
2: <It's right. laughs> exactly. I know we're never so, sure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So right. That's, what he, that's what he knew. That's so what the, he knew. The yeah. tone yeah. mattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And yeah. the so, way in which you said things mattered. Mattered. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And being, he taught elementary as well as
1: secondary. Um, I don't think he taught elementary formally. He was involved in the school at St. Joseph, which had an elementary school, and he kind of cheerled. And he and he gave the sisters who were teaching the children, he gave them the Missaluba to teach, and he gave them his compositions eventually to teach the children. But I think he was more the behind-the-scenes guy. But he taught formally at Purcell High School, which was a, a boys' high school in Cincinnati, and uh, he taught there for several years, close to 10, I think. And he taught English composition and literature, and he was a guidance counselor and a drama coach as well.
0: We'll continue with our conversation in a moment. But first, we'd love to hear your voice. Send an email to Podcast at gmail.com or call and leave a message at
2: 617-682-0885.
0: No matter what your passion is, SuperBlink wants to help your podcast level up. All you have to do is strike up a conversation with people in your lane and we'll help you knock one out of the park. For more information, visit superblink.org. Welcome back to our conversation on Voices from the Pews. It sounds like through his years at Purcell, he made quite an impression, not only on the faculty but on the students that he taught in the classroom, as well as those he led in in you know presenting drama uh, mm-hmm. plays, um, as well as guiding them um, as a guidance counselor.
1: He was very committed to this. I mean, this is a role that a lot of priests play. A lot of new priests just got stuck in high schools and said, "Okay, we need you to teach." You know and and i mean maybe maybe lots of them did it with as much gusto as he did but man he committed to that and he changed lives and these were the lives of young men who would then be sadly destined to go off and serve in the vietnam war and the timing was just such that nearly all of the guys that he taught went to vietnam afterwards and i would say half of them from our findings either didn't come back from Vietnam or came back with such medical, emotional, mental health issues that their lives were really turned upside down. But he gave so many of them an outlet in drama and literature for expressing the emotions of trauma and grief that they were to unfortunately experience so poignantly as a result of this factor of history. You know, I mean, there's so many factors of history going on at the time that father rivers was active that it's it's just really he's he becomes a really fascinating figure through which to view but he would have loved what you said a few minutes ago lorna when you said he was ahead of his time because he's always that way he was just always that way he was and to him i think in the 1950s There was something a little bit normal about that, about being ahead of your time, because everybody was looking forward, you know, everybody was looking forward, especially in the church, at what was about to happen. Because, you know, a lot of people these days seem to think Vatican II popped out of nowhere and was this big coup d'etat. Well, it wasn't, you know, it was actually well planned for, it was well envisioned, and there was a deep pastoral need for it that was being responded to by the council, not just... Let's just do something radical, you know? And so a lot of people who were paying attention were looking ahead to what was to come. And Father Rivers was on the cusp of that. He was constantly looking ahead and saying, what's coming down the road and how can I be prepared for it? How can I be ahead of that curve? When I first called him, one of my first questions to him, I said, I want to come interview you in person. But what I'm going to ask you is, I'm going to ask you about the liturgical movement. Because I had just found out about this movement that 150 years of scholarship, or a hundred years at least, of scholarship that led up to the to the Second Vatican Council. And I said, I want to know where you fall in the liturgical movement. And he just belly laughed in response to that. And he said, well, I'll tell you, I'm not part of that movement. I'm ahead of it. <laughs> and he's not, even at the end of his life, he's not wrong about the what he was trying to accomplish even toward, to the end of his life, it was very forward thinking. And that's one of the things I really deeply admire about him.
0: And And I get the sense that composition and music and all of this liturgy, all of this was just such an innate part of who he was as a priest and as a person. And uh, the people that he guided and mentored who were musicians and composers, he poured a lot of that into what he was teaching them and mentoring them towards as well.
2: Yeah, certainly. uh, I think that he was someone who he was attractive to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, when I met him, he had kind of recluded by then, by the time that both Emily and I had met and we, we met him about close in time, but completely separately. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of retreated. He'd retired a little bit early uh, as a priest and was not presiding at all very regularly, uh, only occasionally presiding, very occasionally. Uh, but that he'd had so many formative relationships with other art, musicians, artists, et cetera. So you hear about those folks like Ron Harbour uh, and Bishop Cherie. And then there are others. I think Grayson Warren Brown really benefited from a mentoring relationship with Clarence Rivers. And so there were just many others as well because he, just, he opened up doors that had not yet been opened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think... He paid some real prices for that, you know, partly because of his personality, partly because he was the first black person to to do it. Mm -hmm. Even in a time, as we were talking about before, where people anticipated. This is one of the things that I think I noticed in our conversations. There were certain folks who were young at that time, younger than him, who had because it had become such a big part of their lives, this movement, this change that was happening, mm-hmm. they expected, in a sense, that it would just keep going. Like right. hmm. Things would just keep changing because that's right. the that's, that's the good thing, right? That like it's keep gonna pro- progressing, keep progressing. Yeah. Right, right, yes. and as if there was going to be infinite progression, right? right. Uh, and so, but as we look back, we can say, well, of course, history doesn't actually usually work that way. There is movement in one direction, and then movement in another. Mm-hmm. And there's response or reaction to one generation, and response or reaction to that generation. I so, always
1: call it the pendulum sh- right. swing. That's right, right. right. And right. so we are,
2: we are living through a pendulum swing as well mm-hmm. right now. Maybe Francis is trying to pull us in a new direction, uh, but I think that you know Father Rivers played an important part in that early time in America when we were. Began to use English in the liturgy, and began to compose new music. And so, of course, we look back, and sometimes we look back at some of that music and say that wasn't very good, or that wasn't right. very good. Right. But when I listen to Clarence Rivers' music, I actually believe, you know, given all of the specifics of the time and the and the style in which it was it maybe have, have performed at its kernel, there is something there mm-hmm. that is is still just good music mm-hmm. right and good and this is the key good liturgical music yeah right. it Some understands of the best. yeah it understands that it has a role to play but it's not the center of the universe
0: right he loved liturgy from what i gathered from you and he knew it well he understood the rubrics and he believed that the music was a way to to help the congregation the parishioners to pray and, and to kind of accent accentuate the, the liturgy. Yes. Yeah,
1: yes, yeah, yes. He, he very much did. He knew that liturgy had to be cathartic mm-hmm. for people as a way of being transformed by it. I mean, this is what we are asked to do. We are asked to become the body of Christ. Right. And, and so that requires a transformation. If it doesn't, why should we show up? I mean, like, we're already... We're, we've all already arrived, then we, I guess we don't need mass, right? Mm-hmm. But, but instead, Father Rivers was constantly expecting that sense of transformation in people as a way of showing that worship is effective. That's, that's mm-hmm. the mark of effective worship is that you're different afterwards than you were before. And music is such a, a factor in um, allowing that emotional engagement, transformative emotional engagement to occur um, so that you come out different on the other side. And so that was, that was a big part of his ministry, because it was a big part, not just because he was, he would always say, I'm not a trained musician. I don't know what I'm, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't even all that great. It's just I didn't have any competition. That's why I, that's why people focused on me in those early days. But the the fact is music was subordinate to his larger goal of the people's participation in worship. It always was. It always was Mm -hmm. from, from even before he started to compose. And music, though, was just this sharpest tool in his toolbox that he could use to get people to engage with worship in the way that he envisioned.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to the first part of my conversation with Emily Strand and Eric Stiles from Meet Father Rivers podcast. He was a convert at a very young age who said yes to the call of becoming a priest and had a deep interest in encouraging a faith-filled expression of African-American culture within the Catholic liturgy. To learn more about his legacy, go to the show notes at VoicesFromThePews.com. You can find the Meet Father Rivers podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. A very special thanks goes out to Emily Strand and Eric Stiles from Meet Father Rivers podcast for being with us today. You can hear the rest of our conversation in the next episode of Voices from the Pews in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Pews, produced by Lorna DeRose. Audio editing and post-production by Byron Lee. Music composed and performed by André Lui. Social media assistance provided by Jacqueline Brunache. Web hosting provided by Beyond the Brand. Connect with us at VoicesFromThePews.com. See you in the next episode. Thank you for listening.